Hey, this is Brian, and welcome to the premiere episode with Chaz Palminteri. What to do when they won't give you the part. Here's what we want you to listen for. Chaz goes through his journey from a broke actor working as a security guard to negotiating a huge feature film deal with major studios. And he talks about what to do when, as an actor, you simply can't get a part. If you've ever felt like you're banging your head against the wall and are feeling stuck, this episode is for you. Before you listen, you've got to get our backstage pass because we've captured Chaz's biggest takeaways and there are some resources for you to really take from the episode and learn from it. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. Again, that is podcastbackstagepass.com. I was going to ask you, I don't know anything about you and your father, except my guess is you had a very close relationship with him. Very close. And my mother, too, both of them, yes. Rose and Lorenzo. So I want to get into the Bronx tale. I, mean, I know you told the story so many times, but let's start with this, Chaz. I'm curious if this is true. They say the creation of Bronx Tale really began when you got fired because Swifty Lazar at his birthday party was not, was not let in by you. Is that true? That's true. Can you elaborate? <laughs> All right, well, I'll kind of tell you the story. You know, I'll run it through for the people who haven't heard it. I mean, a lot of people, it's kind of this legendary story in Hollywood that they, everyone knows, but I'll run through it. Basically, um, what happened was I ran out of money. I, when I got to L.A., you know, I got success, successful. I worked right away. I got there and I got on Hill Street Blues, and then I got on Madlock, and then I got on Dallas, and then I did a mini series. But they were spread apart. I don't want to sound like I went from job to job. I got one job, and then two months later, I got the other one, and two months later, I would live off that for three months, then I would live off that. And my rent was pretty cheap. I think I was paying like $280 a month rent. I was living in this real dump. How old were you at the time? At that time, I was 38. Yeah, no money, no health insurance, no savings. So anyway, but I would use that money to live and and then, you know, get another job. And four months later, boom, oh, wow, that survived. I could survive. You know, when your rent is only 280 a month and I had a had a real broken down shit car, you know, I, I didn't really have much expenses. And basically, I lived on pasta and tuna fish. <laughs> so it was cheap and it was protein. And, and I don't want to sound like I was dying, but... I was happy. You know, I got to be honest with you. I was happy because I was doing what I love to do. I left New York or I got offered this job. I got offered a, a really big job by a club owner where I used to bodyguard him and work for him. And that was Petey Gation. And Petey Gation owned the Limelight in New York, the nightclub, the Limelight. If you guys remember that, you might mm-hmm. be remember. And I was the first doorman there first. And he offered me a job to manage his club in uh, Chicago. And he was going to give me, I think at that time, 1986, 65 or 70,000 a year plus a car. And I said, no. I said, could you fire me so I could collect unemployment in LA? (laughs) And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, if you can do that, that'd be great. And he said, wow, okay. You know, he saw me in a couple of plays and he thought I had talent. So he said, look, if that's what you want, I'll do it. So I went to L.A. and I, and I was making $127 a week. I used that to get an apartment to pay for my apartment. 
And again, like I said, I got Matlock. And, you know, back then, you know, you got a guest star role. It was like, like 2,500, I think it was. So that was enough to survive me for a while. Mm-hmm. And then three months later, I got something else and then something else. And then, but then I ran out of money. Then there, I didn't get anything. And I said, uh-oh, I needed money, you know. So I said, I knew unemployment was going to run out soon. So I said, oh, shit. So I got a job as a doorman again, because that's what I knew how to do. So I got a job as a doorman at this very swanky club called 2020 in the Beverly Center in Beverly Hills. And I was there for like three months. The guy, he was a, a French guy, Fernot, and he loved me because I was very nice with the people. I was very talkative. You know, I, I was a good bouncer doorman, you know. Mm-hmm. And then one night, here's the three rules for a doorman. The three rules for any doorman if you break one of these three rules, you are toast. Any one of them. Number one, you never say the words, do you know who I am? Never say that. Because if you say that, fuck you, you're not getting in. <laughs> somebody says that to me, do you know who I am? I say, yes, you're the guy who's not getting in tonight. That's all. <laughs> or you can't get in the doorman's face. That's another rule. And the third one is you never touch the rope and try to pick the rope up and get in yourself. You break any one of those three rules, you're done. So I'm talking to these people, and this guy runs over, the short guy, bald head, these big glasses, and he says to me, hurry up, hurry up, come on, come on, come on, come on. And I said, hey, hey, you know, just relax. What is your name? And he looks at me, grabs the rope, and gets in my face and says, do you know who I am? (laughs) So in five seconds, this guy broke all three rules. So I said to him, yeah, you're the guy who's not getting into that. And he said, you will be fired in 15 minutes. And I said, yeah, yeah, go get online. <laughs> he was making a big stink. We didn't have cell phones back then. So somebody went in to speak to the guy. The guy came out, the owner. And I heard the guy go, Swifty. And I went, Swifty. And it was Swifty Lazar. And it was his party. His party. I don't recall if it was his birthday party, but I know it was his party. 15 minutes later, the boss called me in, just like he said, and said, hey, man, you're great. I love you, man. You got a great spirit about you, and I hate doing this, but the guy has, you know, 10 parties a year here. I don't know what to do. And I said, hey, hey, man, don't worry about it. I said, it's okay. I said, don't worry. It's cool. I'm good, man. And I left. I went back home. I got in my bullshit car that kept leaking water. I got back home. I got into my shitty apartment. And I said, what am I going to do with my life? I'm in a jam now. Now it's really, it's crunch time. Should I go back to New York? And then I looked up and on the refrigerator, I had a magnet with a card. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And I said, you know what? If they won't give me a great part, I'll write one myself. So I was determined to do something. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one next level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. 
We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. I wrote before, but I never really applied myself to write. I wrote short stories. I wrote lyrics. I wrote poetry. So I got in my car. I went to Thrifty Drugstore on Ventura Boulevard in Laurel Canyon, and I got five tabs of yellow paper. And I came back to my house, and I said, okay, I got all this paper. What the hell am I going to write about? I didn't even have a computer. I didn't even, couldn't afford a computer. So I said, uh, I'm going to write about the killing that I saw when I was nine years old, because I remember that. So I wrote this 10-minute piece of this little boy looking at, at a killing. You know, I narrated it, sat on the thing, and acted the parts out. I said, wow, yeah, I, I think I got something here. So I performed it for my workshop, Theater West, on Coanga. Every Monday night, I would go there. So the first Monday night, I said, yeah, I got this piece. I want to do it. And the guy said, yeah, great. Okay, do it. And I got up there, and I did it. And everybody was, like, stunned. They were like, holy shit. And I could see it. It really worked. And they said, wow, what is that? I said, well, it's this piece I'm writing. And, and everybody was very encouraging. Very encouraging to me. And they said, oh, you got to do it. You know, this is great. Uh, there were a couple of people that were kind of like, ah, I don't know what this is. What, what is that? Is that stand-up? I don't think this will work. You know, and I just, I'm an artist. And I go, you know what? If somebody doesn't like it, that's good. That means it's, I'm on to something. So each week I would write during the week. I could only write between 12 and 5 in the morning. Because for some reason, that was the only time I had that they could let me do, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, theater. So I, I had the code to the theater. I would go there in the morning at one, two in the morning, and I would sit there, hit my cassette tape recorder, and I would, like, write. And then on Monday, I would perform another 10 minutes. And out of that 10 minutes, I took three minutes because I felt that only worked. And then I would write again. Out of that 10 minutes, I took another four minutes. So I kept workshopping it, writing, and then I would keep doing it in front of people and, and I would feel, you know, I just have a sense of storytelling. It was great to do it for an audience because people would comment and tell me what they felt. So it was really great. I had the feedback from the audience, you know. There was the moderator there, Mark Travis, who was very good. So I, I kept doing this. And at the end of a year, maybe 10 months to a year, I had 90 minutes of a show. But I never really did it, the whole thing through, for anybody. But I knew I had a lot of pieces that worked. So there was this woman, Carol. I cannot remember her last name, but she was very influential in my... She said, hey, Chaz, I hear you got a one-man show. I said, yeah. She goes, well, I'm doing a Westfest. And would you like to perform at the Insama Studio Theater? What's a Westfest? She goes, yeah, you know, we're going to have uh, people perform. I said, great, I'll do it. So what happens is I go there. She goes, you're the last act of the whole thing. I said, great, okay. So I'm saying to myself, well, you know, it's probably like my theater. You know, 30 people, 50 people the most, maybe. I go in there, I'm the last act. Those I hear a crowd out there. I go, hey. I said, Carol, how many people are out there? She goes, 350. I said, 350 people? Are you kidding? She goes, yeah. No, why? I said, holy shit, I never did this before for anybody. So I get on stage. I do it with a chair. I put a chair on stage. There's no lights, no set, no music, no sound, nothing, zero. 
just a light bulb in the theater. I put the chair up, and here I go. It's 3 a.m. in the Bronx, New York, and I do a Bronx deal, 90 minutes. I finish it, and the place stands up and goes fucking nuts. Clapping, clapping for like, I don't remember exactly, but anywhere between three and five minutes where I could not talk. And I was the last act. So, you know, that was it. They put on the lights in the theater and everybody's leaving. and Everybody's talking to me and, oh, my God, this is incredible. Yada, yada, yada. This was great. Oh, you got to produce this. This is incredible. And I'm talking with everybody. Everybody's following us. We're all, we walk outside. We got to leave the theater because they're closing up. Now we're on the corner and everybody's talking to me. Oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of left, guys, you know. Mark, everybody kind of left. And then there was two couples and then one couple. And now I'm alone on the corner. I parked my car about two blocks away because I was so embarrassed of this thing. (laughs) So now I'm alone on the corner after all of this, like, incredible feedback and tension. So everybody leaves and I'm alone. And I go, whew, okay. So I start walking towards the car. And for some reason, I was walking in the street. I don't know why. I was walking on, you know, in the street, but on the side. And all of a sudden, I went, I screamed. I'm talking about a scream that was so loud. I'm talking about from the bottom of my gut that people opened up the window. What? My God, what happened? And I just looked up and I went, oh, I'm all right. Everything's good. (laughs) It was like all the years of frustration, of pain and rejection finally just came out. And I walked and I got in my car. I drove back home and I went, wow, I got something. I got something here. So I called my friend Peter Gaishinov, who was the owner of the limelight. I didn't speak to him now in about, I don't know, year and a half, maybe two years, if I can remember. (laughs) <laughs> he always said to me, hey, you know, I want to get in the movie business. You ever do anything? I want to be in the movie. So I said, all right. So I call him up and I go, hey, I wrote this play. It's not a movie, but it's a play. It's a one-man show, but I'm trying to raise some money. And he goes, yeah. He goes, how much you need? I said, I don't know, 25, 40,000, somewhere between there. I figured I'd do a, a six-week workshop, you know. And he goes, uh, well, let me think about it. I said, okay. I hang up the phone. I figured, wow, I figured he blew me off. You know, that was fast. The next day, I'm sitting in my apartment. I get a knock. You know, I go over, I open the door. It's early in the morning. And I see this guy there. And he goes, you Chaz Terry? I go, yeah. He goes, this for you. Sign here. I go, what the fuck? So I sign. Well, who's sending me a FedEx? I, you know, I don't get them. I open up the thing. And it was a, like a check for like 40000 Wow. It was from Petey Gage. I said, what? So I call him up and I said, you didn't even read it. You don't even know what it is. He goes, you know, I saw you in a couple of plays and I saw you in a couple of bit parts in movies and you've got talent. I be- he goes, I think you're, you're talented. I said, okay, don't worry. I'll pay you back. So I had this money. I, I found a theater, West Coast Ensemble. The only theater I could afford had 60 seats, I think. I put a chair with a fire escape and a set. You know, really just bullshit. I figured my mind was just put pieces of a, pieces like a fire escape, a window, 
I'm reliving this and it's all in my mind and I'm going to put it in your mind. Mm-hmm. So I do the show and people are going crazy. I mean, guys, crazy. It's 60 seats. I can't, there's no tickets. It sells out the two weeks. People are just running there. So all of a sudden, people from William Morris come, ICM come, CAA comes. I'm doing the show. I get a phone call. I get a phone call two weeks into it, Mark, from Universal Studios. We saw the show last night, bop, 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 bing, bada, bing. We want to give you $250,000 for the rights. Now, I'm over here going, what? Rights? What do you mean rights? They go, $250,000 for the rights. I said, uh, I got $200 in the bank left. This is it. Mm-hmm. $187 to be exact, which I lived on 187th Street, which is weird. So <laughs> I go, I want to play Sonny, and I want to write the screenplay. He, the guy goes, no, 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 no. We just want the rights. I said, well, let me think about it. I said that. He says, all right, but hurry up. You better call back tomorrow. I hang up the phone. I speak to my mom and dad. They say, don't worry about it. I said, mom, I want to play this part. I want to write it. I just don't want to give it away. It's my life. It's our lives. They said, you do what you got. I said, yeah, but I want to help you guys. Don't worry about it. What happened was I called him back. I said, no. He goes, fine. You made a mistake. Hangs up. I keep doing it. I don't know if you know the names I'm going to tell you. Jerry Weintraub is calling my house. Ray Stark calling my house. CAA, Mike Ovitz, everyone's calling my house. How about Swifty? No, he never called my house. <laughs> he, you know, he never called my house. Fuck him. Too. Anyway, so I get a second offer from another studio. They call me up. $500,000. Wow. Still no money. I say, yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to play Sonny. I want to write this screenplay. Again, can't do it. Boom. Okay. I say, fine. People always ask me, how did you do it? I said, you don't understand. The first offer was the hardest. Yeah. That came out of nowhere. After that, it was just numbers to me. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean shit. <laughs> when you don't have nothing, you got nothing at all. So it didn't mean anything. And you had conviction that you were going to star. You had oh, conviction. No, I said, no. First of all, I'm stubborn as a son of a bitch. I'm Sicilian and I'm a Taurus. So forget it. <laughs> Now I got to get an agent, right? So I'm meeting with CAA. I don't have a fucking agent. <laughs> I did this thing to, to get an agent and be seen. Right. Now CAA is calling me. William Morris is calling me. ICM. All three are trying to sign me. I'm going to tell you everything, okay? We love it. I got, I got a meeting with William Morris. And I get in my car, and I forgot to put water in the radiator. And I, I drive two blocks. Boom. It starts overheating. I go, son of a. Bitch, I got no cell phone, so I got to get the car back, fill it up with water, get it back to my apartment center. Now it's smoking. I didn't wait till it cooled down. It's a nightmare. I call up the guy, Fred Westheimer at William Morris. I said, Fred, listen, I I can't make it because, what do you mean you can't make it? I said, no, my car overheated. Did you sign with somebody else? I said, no, no. I, he goes, stay right there. What's wrong? I go, it's my car. My car broke down. Oh, we'll call you right back. I look at the phone. I go, what the hell was that about? <laughs> right? I tell you the story because how insane this is. Two years before that, William Morris wouldn't let me walk on the same block. 
<laughs> okay? Right? He hangs up the phone. So I'm sitting in my, in my thing. I'm, I'm eating some tuna fish. I'll never forget that. A tuna fish on rye. <laughs> and I hear, knock on the door. I open up the door. There's this guy there with like some kind of uniform. I go, what's up? He goes, you Charles Palmateri? I go, yeah. He goes, come with me. I go, come with you. Where? He goes, come downstairs to the parking lot. I go down to the parking lot. Now, I was living on Aqua Vista in this dump with all these actors. Okay? We all had shit cars. One was worse than the other. Right in the middle of the parking lot is a brand new 1989 Cadillac Eldorado. <laughs> brand new. Black with saddle interior. He gives me the key and says, William Morris got this for you. Don't be late for the meeting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Amazing I, story. Is it the first time driving a Cadillac? Right? <laughs> I take the keys. I call the guy up and I go, what are you guys doing? I didn't sign with you yet. They said, no, no, it's okay. We leased it for you for two years. If you sign with us, great. If you don't, it's our gift. I was like, okay. Before I got in the car, there was this girl there. She was an, an actress. And she said to me, Chaz, what are you going to do with your car? Now my car is smoking over there. She goes, oh, my, everybody's walking around my car. They can't believe it. She goes, what are you going to do with your car? I said, I don't know. I don't need it anymore. She goes, you want to sell it? I go, yeah, okay. She goes, what do you want for it? I said, I don't know. How much you got? She goes, 40 bucks. I said, I'll take it. She gives me the $40 I gave her the car. <laughs> then I get in the car and I drive down the 405 like this. Wow, man, this is incredible, right? I drive down the 405. Let me tell you something. I'm writing a movie about all this. So it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, right. So I drive down and what happens? I go to William Morris and I meet with them. I meet with everybody and everybody was great. Ovitz was great. I see him was great. But William Morris wanted me so bad, I ended up signing with them. Mm. So I did. So now they call me up. I'm doing the show. We had to move it to the Kalanga Theater West because it was 300 seats. Didn't matter. Sold out every night, every night, lines. Finally, William Morris says, we got another meeting for you. We're going to go with you this time. I said, great. I go into the studio. I sit down. There's like 12 people around. The guy says to me, I won't tell you who he is because you would know him. He has a piece of paper and he shoves it across the table. And he says, if you sign that paper, you'll have a check tomorrow for $1 million. But we want the rights to the Bronx Tale to make a movie. You see, what happened was Al Pacino came to see it. Nicholson came to see it. Burt Reynolds came to see it. Ray Sharkey came to see it. I think Redford came. Everybody came. They wanted to play Sonny. Every big director came to see They all wanted to play Sonny. These studios were going crazy. So I look at a check for $1 million, Mark. I said, well, you know what? I said, is there a bathroom there? And he goes, yeah, the executive bathroom's right over there. I walk over to the executive bathroom. I walk in there. I do my business. I go to the thing. I'm washing my hands. And I go, uh, I'm looking in the mirror, $1 million. I can help my mom and dad. I put my hand in my pocket. And for some reason, I took the card with me. I don't know how that happened. And I look and I see the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And I look in the mirror and I go, fuck it. I just say the words, fuck it. And I walk back out. I sit back down with them. And I say, I said, I'll sign that paper. And I can see they all had a little smile on their face. I said, but I play Sonny. I write the screenplay. I'll never forget the head of the studio guy. He just went like this. His head went right down. 
And he looked up at me and said, Chaz, all due respect, but this movie will not get made with you starring in it. You're a wonderful, great actor, but nobody knows you. It won't happen. I said, well, that's the way it'll be. And I stood up. And he says, you're leaving right now? That's it? I go, that's it. And my agents looked at me. They stood up. As I'm walking out the door, he says, you know, this movie will never get made, Chaz. Says that to me. Can, I, can we ask who, who the guy was who said that? The, the head of the studio. He said, this movie will never get made. And I said, you're right. With you. <laughs> and he said, what makes you so sure? And I said, because it's too fucking good. And sooner or later, somebody will make it. And I left. I get a call from the biggest director at that time, the hottest director. So this is before this, uh, this next thing that happened. So I go in to meet him. They said, you got to take a meeting with this guy, Chaz. I said, look, I'm not, they, you got to take, he, he was too, he's like huge. I said, okay. So I like to read up on people before I meet with them, study them, you know, who they are. I go on, on the internet, I look them up. And so I go into uh, the meeting with him. I sit down, we're sitting at this big studio and I'm saying to myself, ah, he's setting me up. In my mind, I'm going, ah, but I'll, I give him courtesy of taking the meeting. And he says to me, he goes, so I saw the show, I came to see it. And he's throwing these words around, genius, whatever, everything. You know? So I go, thank you, thank you. And he goes, it was unbelievable. I said, well, thank you. He goes, I want to put this on my fast track. I want to make this movie my next movie. I'll get in pre-production. Right. I mean, this is like one of the a big guy. So I say, oh, well, I'm flattered, I said. I said, but you know, I want to play Sonny and I got to write the screenplay, right? It's my life. And he says to me, he goes, Chaz, 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 come on, Chaz, stop, stop, stop. Listen to me. We can't make a movie with you starring in it, nobody knows who you are. So I said, well, why don't you do it with me? And then they'll know who I am. <laughs> he goes, it's business. You know, it was like business, it's nothing personal. Just like that, says to me. So then I did my homework on him. So then I say to him, Mark, I say, uh, you graduated film school about eight years ago, right? And he says, what does that have to do with anything? I go, didn't you graduate film school? Very prestigious film school eight years ago? And he says, yeah. I says, oh, right, right. And then you came out to Hollywood. You were this guy out of college. Nobody knew who you were, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, then you saw somebody direct, uh, let you direct this movie, this little movie. And then from that little movie that was successful, you became who you are today. So answer me this. Don't I deserve the same fucking break that you got? Just like that. Silence. He looks at me and goes, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. He goes, I, I apologize. He goes, that you accept my apology? I said, I accept your apology. He goes, I still can't make the movie with you. <laughs> but I said, that's fine. He goes, well, let's finish our lunch. And I said, that's okay. I'm done. And I said, hey, it was really great meeting you. I love your movies. I think you're brilliant. You're an incredible filmmaker. I'm sorry it didn't happen for this one. And he was very nice, and I left. Okay, two weeks go by, I'm doing the show. And all of a sudden, I get off stage, standing ovation. This is it New York or L.A.? L.A. Okay. I do the show in L.A. And I get off stage, and stage manager goes, De Niro, 
just snuck in your dressing room. He watched the whole show. He's waiting for you. I said, Robert De Niro? He said, yeah. I said, oh, shit. So I walk into the dressing room, and Bob is sitting there in the corner, you know. And he goes, hey, man. You know, he said, that, that, that's like the – he goes, I fucking – I don't believe it. He goes, that's – it's not like the greatest one-man show I ever saw. He said – you know, he was like, wow, how the fuck did he do this? You know, and I, I told him. And then he says, look, Chaz, if you sell this thing, they're going to come to me anyway. I said, I know, Bob. I said, but listen, I got to play Sonny. He goes, look, Chaz, Chaz, listen to me, son. He said, here's what I want to do. You should play Sonny. You'll be great as Sonny. And you should write it because it's your life and it'll be honest and real. He says, I'll play your father and I'll direct it. And if you shake my hands, that's the way it'll be. And I'll make it fucking right. Just like that. I shook his hands and that's the story of Bronx Tale. Wow. Um, first of all, spectacular the way you told that story. Thank you so much. I mean, that story was... You know, I tried to make it condensed, and I said, you know what? I love Act- it. Actors are going to hear this, so fuck it. Let me say it. Nobody does special programs like one-on-one Next Level. It's where we really help actors shine. I'm Emilio. I signed with my Southeast agent right after the Atlanta trip, and now I'm auditioning several times every month. And, you know, I almost didn't do the Atlanta trip because I thought it was just another cash grab. I can tell you from experience that it's not. That's not how one-on-one next level rolls. And here we are six months later, and I already booked my first job with my Atlanta agent. I'm Rebecca, and the Bridge program demystified the industry for me. It gave me the platform to get off book in under 10 minutes. I met 60 new artists that are now all a part of my community, and I even signed with a manager. I have never walked away from a program so confident in my abilities. I'm so grateful for one-on-one next level. My name is Capenna, and I can finally call myself a working actor after participating in the LA Super Showcase. I had just moved to LA and I felt stuck. I came across the LA Super Showcase and let me tell you, it was a life-changing experience. I signed with an agent and since then, I've been auditioning for series regulars and booked my first TV job. I finally feel like I made it to the next level, thanks to one-on-one next level. In the next 12 months, one-on-one Next Level will host 27 special programs bringing you unmatched, exclusive access to industry connections. Special programs aren't just a one-and-done class. Instead, they're designed to accomplish in a weekend what it takes most actors months, even years to do. So whether you want to get repped in a smaller market like Atlanta, bypass casting directors and connect directly with TV showrunners and decision makers, or spend a weekend meeting a bunch of musical theater industry professionals in New York City, you have to become a member to be eligible to sign up for our special program. To apply, go to www.1on1nextlevel.com. We can't wait to hear your success story. So that's the thing about the business that we've chosen. I think that it, there's so many layers about not just what you've accomplished, but you know the people that you meet in your life and how you persevered and did not take no for an answer. You right. know what I mean? And, and just kept on going. And then because you did that, let's just say what would have happened if you said yes? Yes, I'll take the million dollars and you can make the movie. Where do you think you'd be from that? You know, it's an interesting question because I'll tell you why. A Bronx Tale didn't come out. I don't know if a Bronx Tale came out yet. I have to remember. I got to go back on my dates. But I got the Woody Allen movie. I auditioned for the movie and I got that. I think it came out a year later, and I don't know if Bronx Tale was out yet. You know what? I never thought about that. I got to see if Bronx Tale was released before Woody Allen. 
But I did get the Woody Allen movie, Bullets Over Broadway. Oh, so you did. Bullets Over Broadway is, is now I may be wrong about this, but 1988? No, Bullets Over Broadway was 94. Okay, something was 1988. So maybe 88 was. No, Bronx Tale was 94 too, but we started 93. I got to look at that and see. I think 88 was when you had the party that Swifty kicked, you know, that Swifty. Oh, yeah, that was the part. Yeah, that's right. That's it, 1988. 88 is when I got fired from Swifty. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Bo, I just told you, I mean, there's a lot of other little things, but I told you the main, the main things out of that, how it all happened. So I'm a lucky guy, Mark. I've always been lucky. I used to make a joke. I can't fuck up my life if I wanted to, you know, because (laughs) I was so lucky. I'm blessed by God. I really feel that. I'm blessed to do what I do. That's why I do your class. That's why I do that class, because I really feel it's my obligation to send the elevator down, to pay it forward. <laughs> and I cast. I've done play readings. I've done pilots where I cast people from your class. I do it because they're good. Mm-hmm. I do it because they come in and win the role. I don't do it as a favor. I tell people that. I said, I like using the people that I worked with. And if somebody's good, because I know the pain that they feel. I know what it's like to sit in that rundown bullshit hotel and eat pasta and tuna fish and just feel in your head, in your voice, there's a voice in you saying, I could do this. I could do this. If someone would just give me a chance, I could do this. So when I teach the kids and I call them kids. They're not kids. They're my age. Some of them are even my age. <laughs> when I teach the actors, men and women, not only do I teach them how to audition, I teach them how to have a strong mind. Hmm. For people who listen, you know, I don't, I don't get paid to talk about one-on-one. I don't, nobody pays me to brag about it. But I always tell people that your place is an important place for these actors to go. And I tell them with that. And here's something that you should tell them is here's the deal. And here's what I tell actors. And they go, Chaz, what's the key? I said, look, 85, 90% of life is showing up. You got to show up. I said, so places like one-on-one, here's the deal. Network is net worth. Period. (laughs) I love it. That's That's the deal. Network is net worth. The more you network, the more your net worth will grow. (laughs) Period. Wow. Unbelievable. That I did not, that is genius. Thank that you. That is the deal. No one is going to knock on your door if Brian's an actor. No one's going to knock on Brian's door and say, hey, Brian, I heard you're an actor. Look, I got this part. Why don't you come on down and read it? It's not going to happen. It's not right. going to happen. Do everything you can do. Go on podcasts. Record yourself. Now it's more better than ever. There was no YouTube or or internet when I was starting. Now you can do a scene. I got people on my podcast that got cast in things because there were such characters that they got cast. So get out there. Meet people. I always tell people, take my class. You don't have to take my class. Take somebody else's class. But get out there. All the casting directors you have there, the directors there, you have all these people, producers, get out there in front of them. Is every one of them going to turn up to be something? Of course not. But you never know. You never know. And what I tell these actors is, 
they always say, Chaz, you know, I haven't gotten a part, and I, I auditioned 20 times. I said, listen to me. I worked with you. You're really good. Sometimes, and a lot of times, the best actor doesn't get the part. That's the way it is. You got to have the right amount of talent for the right part at the right time. That's who gets the part, period. That's it. I said, you might do a great job, and you walk out of there thinking, ah, I suck. No, you didn't. You were the best actor, but you were too tall. You were too short. You were too old. You were too young. You were too black. You weren't black enough. You were too ethnic. There's a million reasons. It's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot. So all you have to do is better your odds and go out there. And this is what I tell these actors. And you know what? When I walk out of my class, I give them the mind of like a warrior because that's the only way you're able to survive. The only way. You know, people ask me, was there ever a moment, I had people interview me and they said, was there ever a moment that you said, it's not going to happen? And I really thought about that. And I said, no, I'm going to make this happen. I told my dad, I'll never forget it. My father used to bring up the line all the time. He said, I remember you told me that when we were young. I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, you think you'll ever quit, son? He told me when I was about eh, in my early 30s. I said, dad, you're going to have to take me out in the box. That's the only way I'll quit. And he left. And he always brought that up to me. You know, that's how I was. Wow. I'll tell you a story how close I was to my mom and dad. Okay. My father, when I was working at door a few times, I was, I don't know, 30 at the time. I was running out of money. So my father, at that time, we had an apartment. My father had an apartment. My mom and dad lived on top of me and I lived on the bottom. So I would write. Dear dad, I need money for gas. I would write it on an index card and I would slip it under the door because I would get home as a bouncer four or five in the morning. The next day, underneath the door would be $20. And this went on for like, on and off for maybe a good six months. <laughs> and then finally, I, I got a little part and I got another job as a bouncer. I made more money. That was it. Cut to... 1994, all these years later, I'm nominated for Academy Award. I tell my parents, hey, I want you to walk down the red carpet with me. They say, no. Nah. I said, no, no, no. I got my wife who's eight months pregnant, and my mom and dad are going to walk down the red carpet. Their son. I mean, that's like, forget it, right? We're sitting in the limo. We're about, right, just about to get out. Well, like one before my father goes, you know what? I'm going to give it to him now. My mother goes, what? I'm going to give it to him. Puts his hand in his vest pocket, hands me an envelope. He goes, hey, your mom and dad, we got this for you. I said, what? I open up the envelope. In the envelope is a stack of all these index cards. $20, $20, $15, $20. And I look at them and I go, what? This is my hand, right? What is this? She goes, you don't remember? All those years ago when you needed money, she goes, me and your father, we saved these because we knew this day was going to happen. And we were, we're going to give them to you. Wow. What the fuck? What kind of mother and father did I have? Unbelievable. And then you want to know why I was so confident? Do you want to know why I was able to turn that money down? Because they made me believe that I could do anything, anything, anything. 
I don't know what else to say. Whoa. <laughs> no, you know what? When you said about luck, you also made your luck happen and they, yes. they helped that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. But I'm telling you, life is about getting out there. You got to get out there. I cannot stress it enough. You know how many times I said, ah, I don't want to go to that party. It's a, a movie premiere. Why am I going? Oh, shit. I would go. I was already famous. And I was like, oh, Chad, you got to go. They want you to go. Your manager says, I said, all right, I'm going to go. I go to this party. Who do I walk right into? Sharon Stone walks over to me, puts the arms around me. Oh, I love your movies. I love you. She goes, you? I just thought of something. You got to play my husband. I said, your husband? She goes, yes. We're doing this movie, Diabalik. I go, oh, Diabalik. And I knew they were looking for not my type. No, you're going to play my husband. I said, all right. So the next day I wake up, I go, I don't know what that was about. I get a call from my agent. Bam. Seven-figure offer to play a husband. Next day, seven figures. Not six. <laughs> okay. I played a husband in the movie Diabolik. So now, if I don't go to that party, I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Right? Unbelievable. So show up. Network is net worth. Show up. Show up. I cannot stress it enough. Wow. That was the best way to end things. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the Backstage Pass. You've got to get the Backstage Pass. There's behind-the-scenes footage. We've taken the biggest takeaways from the episode and written them down for you. There's also tools and resources to help move your career forward. It's the easiest way to turn this podcast into a tool for your career as opposed to something you just listen to as you're doing the dishes. 